Let's open up our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 5. Going to be finishing chapter 5 this morning. As we finish, we'll be looking specifically this morning at verses 18 through 21. But again, for context, I want to read starting in verse 12 as we've done the last several Sundays when we've been in Romans. So let's hear the word of the Lord now together from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good gift that you have given to us through your word. We hear the very voice of our God. Lord, I pray that by your spirit working through your word, you would accomplish that which only you can accomplish, the the calling to life, that which is dead, the calling to sight, blinded eyes, the transforming of your people into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think now together about who are the men who have impacted you the most in your life. Thinking thinking about your life, what what men have affected you the most? Who, Who are the men that were most involved in you becoming what you are today? Now, if you're a Christian, I actually know the answer to that question without you needing to tell me. And the reason I know the answer is because it's actually the same two men for every single one of us. How can I know that that's true, that the same two men had the biggest impact on every one of our lives? Well, I know because we've been in Romans chapter 5 for a few weeks, and Paul has told us who those men are. And what impact they have had. Those two men are Adam 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two men, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, who, whether you know it or not, have had the biggest impact on your life. The first man, Adam, and the best man, Jesus. And so, the fact that Adam has had a major impact on our lives is true, not just for believers, but for everyone who has ever lived. In fact, for those who are not in Christ, Adam is the one who has had the biggest impact. Though we have never met Adam, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, tells us that he's the one who has had the biggest impact on the front end of our lives. From conception to the time that you met the Lord Jesus Christ, no one has shaped your life more than Adam has. And What Paul has shown us here in Romans chapter 5 is that Adam's effect on your life has been a devastating one. But for believers, upon God's gracious introduction of Jesus Christ to you in the gospel, your life was completely reversed, brought from death to life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as we've been seeing in Romans chapter 5, particularly uh, as we've looked now at verses 12 through 17 in this particular passage, these two men aren't just kind of different from one another. They are polar opposites. They couldn't be more different from one another. But they do have one similarity with each other. Each of them forms a solid, unified cohesion with their own people. Adam has a people. And Christ has a people. And that's where the similarity ends between these two men. They, fo- they form unbreakable bonds with their people. And that's all they've got in common. What, what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ achieves, who, who he is and what his superabounding grace has done, it achieves so far beyond what Adam was able to pull us down to. And so no, men have had, no two men have had a bigger impact on your life than these two, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But, but if you're not a believer, let me start by just saying this word to you. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't given up everything in repentance in order to gain everything through faith, there is only one man who towers over everyone else in your life, and that's Adam. It's not these two men, it's just the one man. And Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, tells us that you have been devastatingly wrecked in Adam. You're doomed in Adam. You're condemned in Adam. You are spiritually dead to God in Adam. In this passage, Paul has said you're a sinner in Adam. You are a slave in Adam. And it's not just on a personal level. Paul's also told us you're inseparably bound to every single other dead sinner in Adam. All the rest of the humanity who are in the exact same condition that you're in, in Adam. In other words, you're not a lone pebble rolling back and forth in the waves of sin and death in this life. No, you are a pebble that has been cemented into a concrete slab that is as long and as wide as all of humanity. There is no getting out. You are completely unified and bound in it. That's the message of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And so if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, by that I mean not just that you believe he exists, but that you have trusted in him. You have turned from sin. 
And I invite you to listen carefully and consider Jesus Christ today. Hear particularly what is said of Jesus in these verses we're considering, verses 18 through 21. There's no other man but him who can break you free from what you personally are in Adam and what you are corporately caught up in, in Adam. And so this morning... I want us to consider together as Paul brings this section to a conclusion and begins to transition as he comes to chapter 6, these three stunning victories of the Lord Jesus Christ through justification that secure eternal life for his people. The first we see as we come to verse 18, justification has defeated condemnation. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That was a weird time to take a drink. I'm going to acknowledge that right now. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So he begins here, therefore, he's, he's been making this comparison. This word clues us in, a summary is coming. If you remember back a few weeks, when we started this section in verse 12, Paul began this comparison between these two men, Adam and Jesus, but he didn't end his comparison there in verse 12. Now as we come to verse 18, he's going to bring the conclusion to this comparison. He compares not just these two men, but their two acts, two, two events that are starting points for these men in in building a people. And then from these two starting points, he shows us two results for each man's group of people. What, What is it that comes because of Adam's actions to those who are in Adam? What is it that comes because of Christ's action to those who are in Christ? And so, he, looks at, he begins by looking at these two singular acts. What is, what is Adam's singular act? In verse 18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's one trespass, his transgression, his sin was what? It was, it was committed in the garden. Verse 12 told us this is where sin gained access into the world of men. And as we've seen before in this passage, this word trespass or transgression, depending on your translation, it's not meant to be taken lightly. It's not that in the garden Adam slipped up. It's not that. Many of us know that that one of the words that the Bible uses for sin literally means to miss the mark. And that can be very misleading for us because we have this picture that like we meant really well. We were aiming for the bullseye and we were an inch off. It was an unfortunate miss, but a well-meaning one. No, that is not what sin means. That's not what it means to miss the mark. This isn't a slip up or an oopsie or a stumble. He didn't make a mistake out of ignorance. A clear command had been given to him from God. God told him, do not eat the fruit of this particular tree, and he knowingly ate it. He purposefully ate it. He willfully ate it. He ate it because he thought it would make him happier than not eating it would. He violated the command of God. He rebelled against the God who created him. That's what it means that he trespassed, that this transgression took place. It is no small thing. And through that one transgression, the result to his people was condemnation for everyone, all of Adam's 
people. This is the major way that Adam has had direct influence on your life. You were born in Adam. You were born cemented into this condition. So was I. So was every person that's ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all under condemnation from God, from birth, because of that horrible trespass in the garden. His one act in the garden. If you remember back to verse 12, remember that horrible progression that Paul takes us through about how things went. This downward spiral of of death and destruction and condemnation. In verse 12 he says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Paul gives us this progression that through one man's disobedience, sin gains entrance into the world of man, but sin didn't come alone. Sin brought death with it, and so death entered the world, and then the progression goes that death spread to all men with the result that all dead men sin. They all act like it. That's the horrible progression that followed Adam's trespass such that sin and death now rule over every one of us. But praise God, Paul goes on in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Just as one event was the starting point with Adam, so one event, one act, is the starting point with Jesus. And what's his one act? Adam's was trespass. In verse 18, Paul says Christ's one act is one act of righteousness. What was Jesus' one act of righteousness? Paul has spelled it out for us repeatedly. Let me just read to you from chapter 3 of Romans, starting in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Christ's one act of righteousness? It is his death on the cross in our place. This act of righteousness that demonstrates and vindicates his righteousness. There in that singular event, God demonstrated his own righteousness. He did this in a couple of ways. One, he proved that he is the righteous holy judge. He didn't sweep sin under the rug. He didn't just excuse it. Even as, as Paul kind of points back to the saints of the Old Testament, it's not as though God just, just chose to look the other way and ignore their sin. No, he dealt with sin decisively in his son on the cross. Paul says there, as we just read from chapter 3, that the sins of the Old Testament saints all the way up to our sins today and the ones we have yet to commit We're nailed there to the cross of Christ, punished in him, dealt with decisively in him. God demonstrating his own righteousness in that. But but not just that. The cross of Christ also demonstrates God's righteousness in the sense that he put his son forward as a propitiation. And so now he justifies, he declares righteousness over the life of all of those who have faith in his son. 
God demonstrates his righteousness by not punishing me for the same sins he dealt with on the cross. He's not a wicked judge. Jesus Christ's one act of righteousness is the starting point that leads to, verse 18 says, justification and life for all men. So Adam's one act of trespass leads to condemnation. It solidifies his people together. Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification, and it solidifies his people together. Now, how that plays itself out on Adam's side is a bit of a mystery to us. We know that it does play itself out like this. Paul has shown us this, this, uh, this cycle and how it works, that sin comes into the world and brings death with it, and all men die and all dead men sin. We see that progression, but exactly how this death spread to every individual isn't really spelled out for us. The nuts and bolts of how it works. There's some mystery in how it happens, but there is no mystery how it happens on Jesus' side. None whatsoever. When it comes to how justification is spread to his people, there's no mystery. Paul has been very clear. Just from this passage alone, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. The grace of God and the free gift have abounded to many. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. The free gift brought justification. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's some mystery about how death spread from one man to another to another through all the generations, but there's no mystery whatsoever about what happens on Christ's side, it must be received as a free gift. We could walk all the way through Romans chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, as Paul shows us time and time again, justification comes only through faith as a free gift of God's grace. Notice what he says, though, in verse 18. Justification and life came to who? Came to all men. This trips people up. This becomes confusing for people. It's led to some false teaching. Justification and life came to all men. So the question is, did all men experience this justification in life? Are all men experiencing this justification in life? Will every person experience this justification and life? If we answer yes to those questions, here's what that means. It means all men believed. It means all men are believing. All men will believe. All men who ever lived will be justified and given eternal life. That's what many do with this verse. There's only one problem with that because that sounds great, doesn't it? The only problem with it, of course, is the Bible. The problem is that this is a heresy called universalism that says every person who has ever lived is eventually going to be saved. One thing we can be sure of, if we have gone now through five chapters of Romans and Paul has worked so hard to show us the wickedness and unrighteousness of our own hearts and God's grace and mercy in saving for himself a people, one thing we can be sure is here at the end of chapter five, Paul is not trying to sneak the heresy of universalism into the text. 
He's not doing that. So, so then some say, well, maybe all men means Jesus made it possible for all men to receive justification and eternal life. Jesus died, so it would be potentially possible for them to be justified. That's the way many believe that this works. The problem with that is that is not what the Bible says. You, you for sure can't get there from what Paul's saying here. There's no doubt. There's no degree of uncertainty whatsoever in what Paul's saying. See, see if, we, if we insert that kind of uncertainty into Paul's logic, how Paul's logic falls apart. Look again at verse 18, and let's insert that. Jesus, this was to make salvation possible or potential. And let's see if Paul's logic holds up. Therefore, as one trespass led to possible potential condemnation for all men, because Paul's using just as, or even so language. In other words, this thing worked just like this thing worked. Therefore, one trespass led to possible, potential condemnation for all men. Well, that's not what Paul says at all, is it? Paul's stating a certain fact. The result of the one sin was condemnation for all men. Not might be condemnation for all men. Didn't make condemnation possible. It resulted in condemnation. And so he then says with the exact same degree of certainty, so, or even so, or just like that, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One statement is as certain as the other statement is. And so if we try to say that Jesus lived and died to make salvation potential, to make salvation possible, all of Paul's logic in this passage breaks down. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That can't be what he's saying when he says all men. So what does it mean then? What does it mean when he says all men? And here, friends, is why it's important for us to read the scripture in context and not just lift verses out and go, see these words here? All men. No, we have to read it in context because the answer is actually clear if we'll do that. Look back at verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and the free gift of grace, but that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now Paul's building a sandwich here. That was the top bun. Look at the bottom bun of the sandwich, verse 19. He says the same thing. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be, or obedience, the many will be made righteous. If we keep those two buns in mind, we're going to understand what's going on in the middle of the sandwich when Paul uses the word all to compare the two men. So each use of the phrase the many or all in these passages is defined by, it's constrained by the man that's mentioned right before it. So in verse 15 and verse 19, the first, the many that gets mentioned there is following a reference to Adam. They are Adam's many. They're his many. They are those that belong to Adam, those that are in solidarity with Adam and then the second, the many, that follows the mention of Jesus are Jesus's many. They are those who belong to Jesus, those who are in solidarity with him. And so that's what's happening on the outside buns. And so when we get to the very middle, it's the exact same thing happening in verse 18, except there's an even greater emphasis on solidarity here. 
The first all mentioned after Adam are Adam's all. It is all who belong to Adam. All who are in complete solidarity, inseparably bound to him. And the second all mentioned after Jesus are Jesus's all. It's all men who belong to him, all who are in him, in complete solidarity and justification by faith alone. So if that got confusing for you, looking at that language, the many and the all, as they relate to Adam and as they relate to Jesus, Paul's point is just to show us the complete solidarity of all people, either in Adam in condemnation or in Christ and justification. There's no other category of people. It is all who are in Adam or all who are in Christ, and that is 100% of everyone who has ever lived. That, that's Paul's point. In Adam, you're under condemnation. In Christ, condemnation becomes justification. In Adam, you're under sin and death. In Christ, that death that spread to every person becomes life. In Adam, you're cemented into your sin. You are a sinner by nature, and you are a sinner by deed. You have no righteousness of your own. You only have moral filth and unrighteousness, but in Christ, sinners are made righteous. This is the first victory of Christ. Second, we see that abounding grace defeats increasing trespass. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul, as he has been making this point of condemnation and unrighteousness coming through Adam, of righteousness coming through Christ alone, his first century hearers, especially of the Jews, are going to ask a question at this point. And the question is this, what about the law? If what you're saying is true, what does that mean about the law? See, if you asked Paul's Jewish audience, the same question I started this sermon with, who, what men have made the biggest impact on your life, they would have a ready answer for you, and the answer would be a resounding Moses. Moses and the law of God given through Moses have had the biggest impact on my life. The Jews loved the law. They were proud of the ceremonial, civil, moral law of Moses. They treasured the law as God's gift to man. They understood both condemnation and righteousness as being directly related to the keeping of this law. How do you become condemned? By not keeping the law. How do you become righteous? By keeping the law. And so now Paul says, no, condemnation, it comes not through the law, but through Adam. And righteousness comes not through the law, but through Christ alone. And so this leads them to the obvious question, what's the purpose of the law? If the law can neither condemn nor save, what's the point of the law? So Paul's going to answer that. Paul says the law came in. The law came in. In other words, sin and death were already on the scene. And like a supporting character in a movie, the law is introduced into the scene that's already unfolding. It wasn't the first thing on the scene. It wasn't the main player on the scene. The law came in. And what was the purpose of the law coming in? Paul says something surprising. The law came in to increase the trespass. The, the idea here is that the law entered into the world of sinners by God's design to show the transgressive nature 
of sin. So, so, so that through the law, we would see sin for what it actually is, not just a mistake, not just not quite living up to God's best. No, so that we would know that sin was actually rebellion against a holy God. So, so, so that through the law, we would see, as Calvin said, that the human heart is a factory of idols, that every one of us is an expert in constantly coming up with new ways to sin and rebel against God. And so the transgress, transgressive nature of sin increased with the introduction of the law, because the law defined and revealed the wickedness of sinful humanity for exactly what it was. So the law wasn't added to create sin. Sin was already there. The law wasn't added to stop sin because it doesn't have the power to do it. Although, the law does serve in some capacity to curb sin in people. That's actually true. The law wasn't added because God believed it could change men's sinful nature. It wasn't added so that a man had a way now to work out his own spiritual deadness and... and find a way to God in life. The law wasn't added so that dead men could muster up some kind of version of righteousness of their own and impress God and make God pick them for his team. It wasn't added so that sinners could find life with God through their own efforts, their own merits, or their own goodness. Why did the law come in? The law came in, Paul says, so that sinners could see just how sinful sin really was. That's why the law came in. So we'd see it for what it is. We'd see our own hearts for what they are. So, so we would see that sin isn't just a matter of making a mistake or that's ah, just human nature. No, so that we'd see sin as high-handed rebellion, treason against the true and living thrice holy God. So that we would see it as a willful transgression, a, a trespass against his holy commands. The law reveals just how flagrant and just how pervasive sin really is. So the law then is like a magnifying glass. The, the magnifying glass doesn't, it doesn't create more of the substance that's underneath its lens, does it? No, what does it do? It takes what's already there and it makes it even more visible to us. It makes it stand out even more. It lets us see the contours of it more than we could with the naked eye. It brings to light that which the naked eye might not see as readily. It might not be obvious. So the law aids the eyes of our hearts to see what sin truly is. It's already there. The law didn't create it. The law just helps us to see it for what it is. See how much of it is actually there. Because that's what the law does, it might drive us to despair. If that's all there was. If all we had was the law, we would have no reason to do anything but despair. Because it offers us no help to free ourselves from our solidarity with Adam in sin and death. All it does is show us how hopelessly bound we are. But that's not all there is. The law is not all that there is. We have the gospel, friends. Look at what Paul says in verse 20 here. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, thank God for all the buts in the Bible. 
What glorious good news follows that word time and time and time again in Scripture. The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What a beautiful statement. That statement should be like balm for your soul. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's an intensified verb. It means superabound. In other words, it's not even close. Grace is that much stronger. John Calvin said that Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. John MacArthur says, God's grace is greater than man's sin. Not only is it greater than the one original sin of Adam that brought death to all men, but it is greater than all the accumulated sins that men have ever or will ever commit. Oh, is that not good news? This is illustrated even more clearly in the next verse, verse 21. Paul shows us grace's reign, defeating sin's reign. Look at verse 21. So that, that's a purpose statement. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so grace superabounded where sin increased so that for this purpose that sin would be dethroned. That its reign in death would be defeated and that grace would reign through righteousness. Catch what Paul's saying here. This is, this is so incredible. Justification by faith. God's crediting of Christ's own righteous status to those who believe, leads to eternal life. So God's own righteousness leads to God's own life. He not only gives to us in salvation Christ's own righteousness, he gives to us Christ's own life. Life that is like unto that of God. Life that is from God, in God, through God, eternal, with God. This can only be received, Paul says here, how? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the very one who overcame the grave. So he's the only one qualified to deliver this to us. The only one qualified to be the pathway through which eternal life can come to us and and grace can reign Think about how difficult what Christ has done is compared to what Adam did. We, we likened two weeks ago what Adam did to just dropping a rock and letting gravity take its course. That's all the harder he had to work to do this. Think, though, of what Christ has done. How difficult is it to save sinners? How, how difficult is it to save you, Christian? I think we lose sight of that sometimes. We begin to think of ourselves over time. Oh, I trust that any person who's ever been converted had to come face to face with their sin. But over time, it can be easy for us to look around and think, I was a lot easier project, though, than some of these other people were. How difficult is it to save spiritually dead people? 
I'm not a doctor or a physical therapist, but I know it's easier to mend the injured than to raise the dead. Here's what it means. Here's what it means for you to have been dead and Christ to have had to make you alive. It means the burden of salvation is completely on him. It's totally on him. It's not on us. We couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't will ourselves into living. He had to do it. He had to do all of it. And the grace of God was victorious in Jesus, not only to dethrone sin and death, but to have us reign in life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the power of his grace. Death is no obstacle to his grace. That's how much more powerful it is. Because that's true, it means this grace is enough to reach even you, sinner. Even you. Even me. None are beyond the reach of God's grace. Grace isn't just equal to the power of sin and death. It is infinitely greater than the power of sin and death. Grace reigns over sin and death. This superabounding grace of God takes all of the initiative. It seeks us out. It finds us. It reaches down to the pit. It saves us from hell and death. It's all God's initiative. It's all grace's initiative. We sing in the words of that great hymn, from heaven he came and sought her to be his only bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. That's what grace does. Comes from heaven to seek his bride, to seek his church. All of the initiative is with God. He seeks us out. He saves us from our hell and death. Gives to us the gift of justification and eternal life. This grace, it's not just that it takes all the initiative, it's irresistible. It it fights for God's people. It even fights with God's own people and wins. This grace defeats our rebellion. This grace overwhelms our stubbornness. Aren't you glad? You never find a more stubborn person than I was. I once was, was forced into giving a testimony on a youth group trip to Waco, Texas. And I said, I shouldn't be giving a testimony. It's the summer before my senior year, and I wasn't a believer. And they said, everybody has to do it. And I got up and said, I'm not a Christian. I hope to be one one day. Someone talked to me afterwards and says, why don't you just do it? You believe. Why don't you just become a Christian? And the answer was, I didn't want to quit doing all of the sinful things I was doing. There's nobody more stubborn than me. Praise God that this grace sought me, found me, overcame my wicked stubbornness. This grace that overcomes our own wickedness, it defeats our deadness to God and makes us to live. Grace has triumphed. Jesus Christ reigns, and because he reigns, grace reigns. Here's what that means. This righteousness, this eternal life, it can be yours if you just come to him. That's what that means. 
Just as he promised, eternal life can be ours. It only comes by trusting in Christ alone. Friends, let us in these days trust him. Amen? As we look at the world around us that is just going crazy on every imaginable front, let us trust in him. Jesus Christ reigns. Let's stand and pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your astounding, amazing grace. Thank you that your grace has triumphed over our condemnation and our judgment for all who are in Christ. Thank you for this grace that came and rescued us and broke us free from our solidarity with Adam and has placed us now in Christ where we are held in the palm of his hand and even the Father himself holds us in his hand and none can take us out. We rejoice in your saving, keeping grace. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in us and through us. Cause us to live our lives in the hope that this grace brings, in the confidence that this grace brings, and in the motivation to, to proclaim this grace to a dying world and to proclaim the lordship the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in this dying world. Be glorified in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.